Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the first week of September of 2020. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, Director of Research for the Texas Politics Project. How's your workload, Josh? You managing? I'm better now that the conventions are over. Yeah, that made for some late nights and, and cognitive <laughs> dissonance too sometimes, it was, yeah. yeah. It's a strange time. <laughs> yeah. So today on the podcast, we want to hit two subjects, the emerging law and order frame that is being promoted by the president and his campaign in national politics, although that certainly has bled into state politics in some ways we'll talk about. And then we also want to touch on the lawsuits filed against the Harris County clerk over their approach to mail-in ballot applications. We've talked about mail-in ballots here, uh, I think, more than once and voting by mail. And I think as broadly anticipated, the the subject was not settled and has arisen again. And we can talk about who, if anyone's fault, that is. Um, but let's start with the presidential race and really kind of the dominant national story for the last you know, several days, really starting during the conventions with the events in Kenosha. Um, and the theme, and that theme is, you know, the, the Trump administration's doubling down on, you know, you know, we can call it the law and order frame, a law and order rhetoric, the, you know, er approach of law and order that has really taken center stage in the Trump campaign. And as we record this, uh, the president is on the ground in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the scene of yet another police shooting of a black man last week, which sort of went unremarked upon in the immediate moment at the Republican convention, certainly by the president, though it loomed in the background, right? I mean, you were talking about the convention. I mean, even though there was lots of talk that nobody really expressed any condolences or said much about it, it was very much there. Well, they may not have said any, expressed any condolences or said much directly about it, but they certainly set, conveyed a lot, right? I mean, and I think that was clear over both the Democratic and the Republican convention, right? In the sense that, you know, setting aside for a second sort of the thorny issue of whether you see sort of the, the recent, you know, protests, you know, protests in response to, you know, the killings of African-Americans by police, in particular systemic racism in general, as basically, you know, peaceful protests on the one hand or, you know, violent uprisings and riots on the other. So setting that aside for a second, right? For the uh, moment. Yeah. For the moment. You know, I mean it was it was notable the extent to which I would say, you know, the Democratic convention really leaned into the protests and really, you know, had videos, you know, montages of people protesting in the streets and sort of I would say almost on every night made an attempt to actually kind of lean into that movement and say, you know, you're welcome here. You know, just as frequently, if not more so, I think during the Republican convention, you know, you basically saw lots of, you know, mostly statements about, you know, the importance of law and order and, you know, you know, quote, quote, unquote, Democrat led cities where, you know, this violence is taking place, which I think, 
you know, I think in some ways, you know, shows that both both campaigns, in some ways, even though the Republican campaign seems to be a little, and Trump's campaign seems to be a little bit more focused on this law and order tact for, I think, you know, some particular reasons, both campaigns are focused on social unrest right now. And I mean, that's clear. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, what we've seen is a, you know, an interesting deepening of the divide on this as we've seen more of a counter reaction. Now, this didn't start with this round. This really goes back in many ways to Charlottesville when Donald Trump seemed to want to give, you know, at least equal validity. I mean, his famous statements about there being, quote unquote, good people on both sides when the Charlottesville mm-hmm. protest was really started by white supremacists and neo-Nazis, which set a tone that I, I think he's never quite gotten away from. I mean, I think he's, you know, the people around him have danced around that. And, you know, I think we've seen him double down on that in the last 40, 48 hours by his sympathetic comments about the, uh, the young militia members in, member in Kenosha who, you know, traveled to Kenosha from, you know, Illinois, a couple of towns over from Illinois. And, you know, it's pretty close, but nonetheless, he, cross he state, wasn't- Cross state lines. He crossed the state line and, and, and wasn't from there and wound up, you know, with other people and was fully armed and wound up shooting three people, killing two, you know, in a situation in which, you know, it's still being sorted out to some degree, but there's some fairly unambiguous video in which he is, at least it looks unambiguous at this point, from what we know about it, in which he shoots two people. And right. we know that in now that he killed one of them and injured the other and had already shot somebody else by all reports, and he doesn't seem to be denying that at this point. And I think the president, you know, by sort of wanting to give that person the benefit of the doubt in such a direct way, you know, has, has raised the ante on this again, even though you would think that he couldn't, you know, I think every time, you know, Trump throws in a bunch of chips, you think he's kind of bought the pot to use a, a poker metaphor, but no, I mean, he just, he keeps throwing chips in there. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I, I think it's really, you know, strengthen the frame of this, but it's taken it, you know, it feels to me like it's taken it to yet to yet another, to, to yet another level, maybe, you know, being well, too but, sensitive but I mean, to it, but. Well, that's, but that's the question, right? I mean, I think, you know, we haven't really talked about this this way, but I mean, that you know, that is kind of the question is, is that, you know, is there a line at which, you know, even setting aside disagreements about, you know, whether or not what's going on in Kenosha is better defined as protest or riot, Again, I'm just you know setting that aside because I think it's you know it's important in terms of how people view it, not to say that there's some objective standard, right? But in terms of how people view it, I mean, ultimately, you know, the question becomes, you know, how far can you go in ignoring you know the claims made by the protesters or the rioters on the one hand, uh, and how far are you willing to go in you know your you know and basically your stated commitment to to law and order and justice. And I mean, and this seemed like, again, a step pretty far. I mean, during the convention, you know, the president said, hey, look, you know, let me know and I'll send the federal troops in and I'll clean up your cities in a second, which was, you know, pretty unambiguous about. And what he's was still meant. saying that. Yeah. Yeah. It was what was meant by that. And that's one thing. And you'd say, well, it's another thing to say, hey, you know, I'm willing to use the, you know, the use of force to create law and order. It's another thing to sort of, you know, wink and nod at ordinary citizens taking guns across state lines into, you know, clearly dangerous situations, regardless yeah. of the specifics of what happened. 
I think I would also, just to clear some of the underbrush there, say that, you know, I mean, in their relatively pure forms, I mean, I think it's, you know, I don't have any trouble telling the difference between a riot and a protest. And I think that, you know, for the most part, if you're you've been, looking You've been at, to enough. <laughs> well, there's that, but well, setting that aside for a moment. I mean, I think there is a difference between, you know, people marching and there being no conflict and no destruction of property yeah. with a political message and that being pretty clearly a protest or a demonstration or an exercise of free speech that doesn't involve much in the way of trade-offs. You know, when you see, you know, buildings burning and, and you know, violence in the streets, you know, you're getting more to something that you, you know, you would call the term riot becomes loaded. But, it, you know, it's not a peaceful protest at that point. It's something else, right? Well, I, I, th- I think that's right. I, I, I do th- I th- Go ahead. Well, I was going to, I mean, just kidding, but in the broad, not that we're sitting here to try to define the difference, but in the broader discussion, you know, of this, of the phenomena that we're watching right now of the social movements, whether they're protests or riots, I mean, ultimately the question kind of comes down to how much of a riot makes it a riot, right? I mean, ultimately, if you see one burning building, you know, by one ne'er-do-well, right, does that make it a riot? Right. And, and I think the point that we're, we're going to... Yeah, you know, I, I think kinda, that's fair. I think that's you know, fair. I mean, I just, people I just are more wanted to be a little careful you know, that, it's, that it's not entirely in the eyes of the beholder. But yeah, I mean, I think the manipulation of images and, and, and you know, again, there's a, there's a media piece of this with so many things now that's kind of unavoidable in this. But we are, yeah, but... Yeah, the point being that there's enough of a eye of the beholder piece that people are looking at this and using other, you know, other kind of predispositions and other attitudes to fill in any kind of ambiguity or judgment calls that might be there. And so, you know, if Donald Trump stands up before a group of people that support him and say, these people are rioting, the one burning building in your example is what comes to mind. Right. Right. If, if Joe Biden stands up, I mean, to be fair, in front of, you know, the Democratic Convention and talks about a social movement, um, the first, you know, the images that are being invoked are not the images of a burning building, whether it's one or 10 or. And, and I would and I would add to that just in terms of the way the mind works is that, you know, those images don't even need to be from the event that we're talking about. So ultimately, I mean, right. you know, the reality is it's not like people are making distinctions between what exactly happened, you know, in Kenosha versus what the protests slash riots looked like in Austin versus Philly versus Portland. Really, the idea is if you think these are riots, the images that are going to come to your head are burning buildings. If you think these are social movements, you know, you're going to be thinking of something different. And they're just right. people are just coming to this from a different perspective. So that, so that brings us then to like the, in a lot of ways, what the kind of got us started thinking about this, at least this week, and then thinking about talking about it today, which is, you know, what kind of attitudes is this law and order frame landing on? You know, how is, how is it being received? And, you know, in a, in a very kind of um, cold sort of way, is it a winning strategy for Donald Trump or not? I mean, and clearly it's the strategy they're taking and there's really no ambiguity about that at this point. I think one of the ways we look at that, you know, as we always do is to look at polling and see, you know, how is landing with whom? And it, at one level, I mean, you know, this is a clearly a partisan mobile, it it works in in some part as a partisan mobilization strategy for Trump. 
Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, we'll come back to this, but I mean, I think the point is, you know, is it a good strategy or the best available strategy? And right now it might be the best available strategy. So we'll come back to that, you know, maybe if we remember, but, but, but ultimately, you know, as a partisan strategy, you know, as a strategy to mobilize core supporters, you know, it, honestly, it really works pretty well for both parties. I mean, I'd almost say to some extent, it looks like a bit of a draw. And what that means is that, you know, we have a bunch of questions that we asked on the June 2020 UT Texas Politics Project poll about race and policing and discrimination society. And a couple of these items, I think, you know, illustrate the point as well as any others, which is that, for example, when we asked Texans whether or not, uh, you know, the the deaths at the, of African-Americans at the hands or in the custody of police in recent years are isolated incidents on the one hand or signs of broader systemic problems between race and policing, what you end up finding is you find 76% of Republicans saying this is an isol- these are isolated incidents. You, found, you find 88% of Democrats saying that these are signs of broader systemic problems. And honestly, you know, we could get into these, go down the line, police favorability, right. favorability towards the protest or, or negative attitudes towards the protest. And honestly, the splits look roughly the same where you're seeing, you know, between somewhere between 70 and 80 some odd percent of Democrats taking more of a social justice, you know, position uh, and Republicans sort of questioning the premise to say the least. Right. This come, falls down to attitudes towards police, uh, you know, again, attitudes towards protests, attitudes towards Black Lives Matters, really even attitudes, you know, towards discrimination writ large. So ultimately, as a as a mobilization strategy for both sides, as witnessed, I think, at both conventions, although in different frames, you know, it's a good bet. It really lands squarely on issues where you have, you know, 70, 80, 90% partisan support for your position on the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you chose the item you did first. That is the most that is the most polarizing one among Republicans and Democrats. And in, in, in a sense, you know, to your point that this actually maybe works for Democrats to some degree, you know, I mean, it's only 12 points, but the kind of, you know, sign of broader problems, which is ultimately the systemic racism presumption mm-hmm. for most people, it's actually higher among Democrats than the isolated incidences among Republicans. Well, now, they're still lopsided. It's still 88-76. So the point holds, but that does underline. Now, I think other areas are a little, I mean, especially the police thing. And I think this is why I think Biden, and we're seeing mm-hmm. this in, in yeah. some of the care in which Joe Biden took yesterday to say, and, and for the last couple of months to say, hey, look, I'm not in favor of defunding the police. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not what's going on in the Biden administration. Because on police favorability, um, it is a little a little more closely divided. Again, 53% of Democrats have a favorable view of the police and 84% of Republicans, I'm, I'm sorry, 54, 53% of Democrats have an unfavorable view of police, 84% of Republicans have a favorable view of police. And so if you look at that, I mean, and then you look at the intensity there, 23% of of Democrats have a very unfavorable view of the police, but more than half, 55% of Republicans have a very favorable view of the police. So, you know, to get out of that garbled word salad, I mean, basically, you know, the intensity of support for the police is stronger among Republicans in terms of a base level than it is among Democrats. And we've seen more movement of that since over time, you know, in in the interim of, of the more recent reckoning with race. I think that's right. And I think, you know, the way you set that up, I mean, besides the word salad, it was, was right, right? Which is that, you know, I think what you find is, is that, you know, when we look at this item, both 
in isolation in June, obviously. So first to say, you know, at a time in which this was, you know, a very salient issue, what you see is, you know, Democrats, you know, from previous times we've asked this question, uh, showing slightly more negative attitudes towards the police, but still, you know, I would say on balance, relatively split. And this is something else too, you know, we ask, you know, by race and what you end up finding is, you know, I think, you know, kind of mixed views towards the police among African-Americans as well. And I think, you know, someone wrote something recently that I thought was really, you know, interesting and kind of a good point here, which is, you know, as much problems as, you know, if you're living in a, let's say a, you know, a community that has violence and has a lot of crime, ultimately you may not like the way that police handle every situation and you may have serious problems with that, but ultimately you still want the police to show up when there's crime. Right. And that's something here. And so whereas for Democrats, it's a little bit of a, of a complicated and open question about how they want to orient themselves towards police. And it goes back to that, you know, is this isolated or systemic? And even that can go beyond just evaluating individual police and police departments. But for Republicans, favorability towards the police is something of an article of faith. I mean, it's basically yeah. police in the military are overwhelmingly positively viewed here and usually more so than any kind of other government actor, uh, you know, that really we could ever measure. And so it's, it's not a question to be defending the police. If you're a Republican elected official for Democrat, I think you're watching what Joe Biden is doing and trying to be more careful about acknowledging problems, but also making clear, Hey, we're not talking about all police. Most police are good. He has a little bit more of a a fine line to walk on the police question. Yeah. And and I think, I was going to say to his credit, but certainly at least in, in, in this instance, to his advantage, he seems to natively get that. And I think when, when Joe Biden goes out and says, hey, look, you know, we'll do little Biden, you know, hey, look, man, no one's trying to get yeah. rid of the police. Yeah. Right. I'm not, I'm not that guy. You know me. Right. I mean, it comes across at least as credible in a well, way that, but it goes you, know, back. I, you know, is helpful, but does raise the question of helpful to what? I mean, we've been talking about partisans, you know, and then the issue is, okay, so if this does sort partisans with a couple of asterisks, I mean, in other words, you know, Biden has to make a little bit of effort to make sure he doesn't go a bridge too far on this, even with Democrats. Yeah, but I mean, I would just, just, just to go back a beat, I mean, I would just say the thing is, I think that's why I kind of started with that item about isolated incidents versus signs of broader problems. I mean, Ultimately, for Democrats, the issues that they are talking about with respect to policing and race are actually just a subset of the broader questions about sort of systemic racism and racisms in society that impacts everything from, let's say, home ownership and, you know, lifetime wealth and, you know, susceptibility to, you know, negative effects of COVID, right? And all these other things that, that kind of keep coming up again and again, of which policing is one, right? And so ultimately, you know, I mean, Biden doesn't need to be the guy you know, shooting a paintball gun at the police to be, you know, someone who's credible on this issue, because the issue is broader than that for Democrats in a way that it doesn't seem to be for Republicans. What do you mean by that? I'm not sure. I'm tempted to not agree with that, but I'm not sure what you mean for sure. Well, I think it kind of, com- I mean, I think, you know, when you're thinking about the idea of that question about, uh, you know, the deaths of African-Americans at the hands of police in recent years in this, in this question of, you know, is this something about isolated incidents or is this a, a broader systemic problem that we need to address, right? And we've kind of talked about this before in other ways, but honestly, you know, if you do come down on the side of saying that these shootings that we see, you know, week in and week out are actually just isolated incidents, then the fix in and of itself is basically just to, ba- you know, really honestly, sure. give, give, give police more money and better training, you know, would be one right. potential solution right now. That's obviously well, well, and remember fraud. the other and the other piece of that that we hear a lot is, you know, raise kids better so they 
And this goes to like the, oh, the military yeah. police thing, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, so that they respect authority. And that's polling based, just to be clear. I mean, you know, in addition to yeah, the no, I didn't just make that are out up. there, yeah. <laughs> no, but that is something that we do find, you know, when you ask people about these sorts of things. So anyway, so, I mean, that's what I mean by it. I just, you know, I think that for Biden, there's not really much value in, in standing in the space where we're focusing solely on police. He's much more comfortable and better off both with, with Democrats, I think, and also, you know, probably with the broader electorate and saying, as you said, hey, man, I'm not looking to defund the police. I've been very clear about that, but I do acknowledge systemic We got a problem, man. But we got a problem, man. Now I'm really leaning into my Joe Biden <laughs> yeah, no, keep man going. thing. It's, it's going to be a long campaign for you if I keep that up. Um, uh, so, Yeah, going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's already been a long campaign for everybody, to be fair to myself, um, which I really want to be. Um, so, let you know, before we move on, let's talk a little bit about how this is played in Texas, because there's been a couple of episodes of this, you know, you know manifesting itself in Texas, and I think, but, but most... Most notably recently, you know, and I think we talked about this on the, when it happened a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, when the city of Austin restructured and to some extent reduced its police budget. I mean, it, you know, the budget reduction in terms of absolute funds that were going to be missing was about $20 million. The overall amount, including that 20 that got moved around, was 150, 151, maybe to be precise. But the statewide Republicans really jumped on this in Texas and... You know, in in no time, you know, the governor had issued a statement condemning this and suggesting that legislation would be written that would prevent cities from raising their property taxes if they cut their police budgets. Mm-hmm. Broadly speaking, uh, you know, press events were held, statements were issued, not only Abbott, but also you know, all of the big three. You know, but, I, you know, it, it really underlines, I think, the degree to which we have to think about how salient this is. And how much it depends, how much getting mileage out of the issue and, and hitting some of these attitudes that we've been talking about, both directly, but also more broadly in this kind of traditionalist view of authority. Um, well, it goes, I mean, I you know, think it goes you know, back. What, what, you, know, how, you know, how able are you to keep that front and center? And also, and we kind of, you know, didn't hit it, but, but also, you know, does this move votes in a political system in which the parties are becoming more competitive? Well, I think there's two things here. I think one, it goes back to, you know, you know, good strategy or best available strategy. And I think, you know, for Republicans right now, whether you're Donald Trump or whether you're, you know, Texas Republicans looking to maintain your majorities in the legislature, ultimately, you know, you're looking at the issue space right now and you think like, well, can we talk about the strong economy? And it's, well, nope, not anymore. You know, can we talk about how... How, how well the corona, you know, our, yes. our, our, our efforts to combat the coronavirus are going. It's like, well, not yes. without, you know, some difficulty. Yes. Uh, could you I know. order off the menu? <laughs> well, and it, well, exactly. Well, I mean, I was going to say, actually, you know, the issue that they normally ret- would return to would be immigration and border security. But, you know, at the moment in which, you know, the president has had four years to construct, you know, a border wall by hook and by crook. I mean, any way he could come up with it. You know, my understanding, I mean, I think even the quote that he had from the convention was something around the neighborhood of, you know, we'd be done with, you know, about 200, 300 miles, 300 miles of border wall. There's 1,200 miles of border just between Texas and Mexico. So, I mean, you know, it's hard to kind of look at that and say, well, what of your normal issues would you pick off of or what would you like to? And, and really the issues available are the issues that are at least the most salient to voters in general and Republicans in particular don't look good for Republicans right now. 
this is a much better looking issue. And, and part of it is, and so the why of this is some of these subgroups too. So setting aside the fact that, you know, it may have the ability to mobilize partisans. And that's an open question. We say may, like how salient is it? How important is it relative to other issues? And how, how long can they keep it on the front burner? Or how long do events keep it on the front burner? I mean, are all open questions. But then the other piece of this is how this you know, these, this constellation of issues sort of affects, you know, the, the narrow slice of either unaffiliated independent voters on the one hand. And I think, you know, what, what I think we're increasingly focused on in Texas, you know, for reasons that don't just have to do with people talking about it, but the reality of the way the populations are movement is how this affects basically the, the people who live in Texas's suburbs. And that's a pretty diverse group of people, ultimately. Right. And, and getting more diverse all this part of the story. Exactly. And so, you know, what we tend to find is, you know, on these law and order issues, I mean, this is kind of important, I think, you know, is that among political independents who in the last year or so are increasingly souring on, on Donald Trump's leadership and our job approval numbers in Texas, uh, what you find among these independents is, you know, on balance, I would say more on the law and order side of the equation on a lot of these items than on the sort of, we'll just say the social justice side, right? And that's yeah, not they look, they look a little. Yeah, they look a little... They look more like Republicans than Democrats, though they're not as intense on most of a lot of these things. So on the police favorability in Texas, I'll try to read this chart again. You know, <laughs> independents are 44 favorable and 29 unfavorable. Now, same direction as Republicans, but not quite as not quite not quite as intense. Right. But ultimately, you know, we're at the point we're at the point in this election cycle where what we're talking about here is we're talking about, you know, the nature of do independents, you know, give Donald Trump an extra two points or do they deliver Joe Biden a point? I mean, we're kind of in that. I mean, we're kind of thinking about that space as we're talking about elections. And especially, you know, again, if we think the election in Texas is going to be close, which all polling up to this point, although, you know, relatively inaccurate because it's taking place during the summer, has shown a close race. You know, the Beto Rook Ted Cruz race was close. Right. So there's some assumption that we're going to see closer than usual race here. And then all of a sudden, you know, we might care about, a, a, you know, a three point swing from plus two Trump among independents to plus right. one Biden. But this is an issue that, you know, looking again across kind of where independents fall, the fact that on balance, they're a little bit more law and order oriented and a little bit more conservative, which is ten generally tends to be the way that Texas independents look, you know, it's a, it's not a bad play. The suburbs are a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah. Much more complicated. And we're still kind of sorting that out. You know, because in a lot of ways, the suburbs writ large look more or less like the rest of Texas on a lot of these issues. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if you kind of look at the top line results so just among Texans overall and then say, well, let me look at rural residents, you know, uh, suburban residents and urban residents, you know, the suburban residents. Now, Josh, you didn't well mention education. Ron Brownstein's going to take you out to the woodshed. Yes, I know. Well, I didn't <laughs> I mention I didn't. I no, it's OK. It. <laughs> no, I know. Well, I, I don't even think I mentioned them yet. But I mean, but the main point, you know, we'll make in terms of looking at this data is, you know, and this is the thing about Texas's suburbs at this point, is are you talking about, you know, white suburban voters or non-white suburban voters? Are you talking about suburban men or suburban women? And I would overlay on all that, you know, are you talking about suburbans who are suburban voters who are under the age of, let's say, 40 to 45 or over the age of 45 and over? And you could combine all of that. I mean, ultimately, you know, what the data suggests is that, you know, the views of a, you know, likely college educated uh, Hispanic woman living in the suburbs are going to look pretty different from a college educated, you know, I said young, right? So a young, yeah. you know, 
so let's say a 29 year old college educated college educated Hispanic woman on the one hand versus a college educated 62 year old white man. Not only, you know, are they both living in the suburbs, but they're actually probably living in kind of different suburbs. Even a 60 year old white woman, college educated white woman. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's the thing. So, I mean, how this actually kind of splits out in the suburbs is really a question of mobilization. I mean, at this point, you know, to the extent that this issue carries through and is important in the election, I mean, ultimately it really kind of comes down to, I think the central idea, I think animating these elections, which is, you know, which is basically, can Donald Trump recreate his coalition and not lose too much? Well, you know, ideally expanding his base a little bit. Uh, on the one hand, and for Democrats, I mean, what they seem to be doing, especially in Texas, but I would say, you know, watching the national convention generally is, can they appeal to younger, uh, you know, diverse, but maybe lower propensity voters? Right. And you can see that in the suburbs here. You see that playing out. Speaking of, you know, do they turn out, let's talk at least for a couple of minutes and we're almost out of time about the return of mail of voting by mail to the courts. Now, you know, yes, that's in the, in the spring and early summer, this was all, you know, this went through the, we went through a round in the courts, um, in part, you know, triggered by the runoffs in which, you know, Democrats for the most Democrats were suing to loosen the rules for voting by mail as of now. In Texas, you can vote by you can request the mail in, in ballot and cast it for two for two reasons: either you're over sixty five, or you have a disability or health condition. And in a way, that becomes three reasons. Well, there and there's one more, which is if you're not going to be in your county of residence. Yeah, if you're going to be traveling, just to be yeah, so want right. to be accurate. <laughs> uh, and so, the Democrats were suing essentially to say that the the pandemic should allow for, you know, an excuse, you know, in, in essence, no reason mail-in voting. Right. And they lost in court with an asterisk. Right. Um, and that asterisk being that the, the you, I mean, they lost in federal court. And then in the, the Texas Supreme Court held that while the, the general coronavirus vote-by-mail card wasn't legit, that it was up to the voter to make a judgment about what was a threat to their health and that it was up to the county clerks to take their word for it, more or less. Right. You know, based on, on the information that the voter provided. Some, you know, since then, the Harris County clerk... Well, responds, can I add one thing there? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, the one thing I want to add for a broader context to this, so again, so the courts basically, more or less, have said, you know, the coronavirus is not a disability, so therefore, you know, by through the courts, we're not expanding mail-in voting. It would have to be some other mechanism. But it's important to know contextually, Texas is one of only six states that hasn't right. opened up mail-in voting in some way due to the pandemic. So that's just right. a broader context. So go to Harris County now. And so in Harris County, they um, the, the Harris County clerk had was planning to proactively send out mail-in ballots to every voter, or, or mail-in ballot applications to every voter in Harris County, which would be more than 2 million voters. Uh, despite being told by the Texas Secretary of State not to do so. So they are now being sued by the state of Texas and the personage of the Attorney General who does such things. Um, you know, on the argument that they don't have the authority under state law explicitly to carry out the plan. Now, they're not prohibited from doing that, but the argument is, you know, before the court is going to be that they and this is now in a federal appellate court, is that they've, they don't, because it says they can't do it, they shouldn't. 
And yeah, it's so, yeah. you know, they don't have very they don't have very long to to figure this out. But this is, you know, continues to, you know, to sort of roil the the, the political system in the state is going to wind up probably making a difference depending on what this on one what the decision is i think and that's why it's been so hard fought yeah i mean i'll say this you know regardless of what the decision is uncertainty about when and how to vote is not good for anybody yeah <laughs> period right and, and ultimately you know that that is uh you know what's going on here now i should say i mean just to add some you know again more context to this it's not as though Harris County can't send out mail-in ballot applications. And in fact, many counties are sending out mail-in ballot applications to voters who are over 65, basically, because you're automatically eligible when you're over 65. Right. It's if you send them to everybody. Well, but the interest, but the interesting thing, I mean, I just, you know, just thinking right now about that argument is given that the voter has to determine, you know, their disability, presumably any voter is potentially eligible for well, their disability ballot. or health threat or threat to their right. health. Right. Yeah. But my point is, says. right. But my point is, is that, you know, the state doesn't keep a list of such persons. They wouldn't know no. if they if they did. So ultimately, you know, sort of this argument about, you know, well, we can only send it to these eligible voters, but not these potentially eligible voters, it seems to me is going to be problematic. But the point, again, is not necessarily to make it easier. You know, and I should say something else about this. I mean, there's a partisan aspect to this that is obvious. Right. I mean, ultimately, you know, Republican elected officials don't want, you know, significantly higher turnout in Harris County, which has been, you know, a big urban environment, which even, you know, its suburbs have been trending more and more Democratic over the last few election cycles. I mean, just just put that out there is, is yeah. kind of, you know, I would say it's fair to say the Republicans have been getting creamed in Harris County for the last couple of cycles. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the other thing about the partisan point here is, you know, that we saw in our polling in June is that, you know, we asked people that if they were allowed to vote, how would they cast their ballot? Um, 54% of Republicans said they would cast their ballots in person early. Another uh, 28% said that they would cast their ballot in person on election day. So 82% of Republicans. Right. Only 13% of Republicans said that they would vote by mail compared to 52% of Democrats who said they would vote by mail if they could. So, yeah. Let me add one. So I remember what I was going to say. I want to just add one nonpartisan spit on this, which is, you know, Harris County had some problems during the primaries dealing with, you know, not with high turnout for a primary, but not high turnout in any sort of real sense. And ultimately, a lot of these urban counties are going to have difficulty in terms of getting election workers there, having enough election right. workers, because most of the time election workers are older people who have who are available during the day to do these kinds of things. And there is just an election management piece to this, too, which is, you know, to the extent that Harris County can get more people to vote by mail who are eligible to. It just means that they have to deal with less people voting on Election Day or around Election Day when they might not have the staff and the resources, you know, to, to efficiently get people to vote. I mean, that's that's just, you know, a fair reality out there. Uh, you know, and one other thing I, I want to say that I think we should say from now on going forward, I just like as a public service, you know, it's not going to be election night. We're going to be counting votes for some yeah. number of days, you know, not just in Texas, all over the place. Yeah. This is something and, I know, think, you know, we need to just keep saying that to set expectations as, as best we can. And there was a piece, I think, in Axios this morning that was, a, you know, to the effect that, you know, this is likely to play poorly in terms of the national discussion, because given the patterns that we've talked about, not to be relentlessly mm -hmm. about partisan differences, but because it's probably very likely that more Demo a lot more Democrats will vote by mail than Republicans, 
what it means is that the election night, the initial waves of returns, should the close, are likely to be disproportionately Republicans counting, disproportionately counting Republican votes, and some of those totals will change as they cha- as they count the mail-in ballots. Well, I don't see. I don't see what could. <laughs> Yeah, what could, what go, could wrong? go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we'll end that with the what could go wrong note. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. And when we post this, um, at least on our website, we'll post some of the graphics nearby so you can look at some of the numbers that we were talking about, including the ones I fumbled. Uh, take care, stay well, and we'll talk to you next week. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.